welcome back to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel, and today we are talking about re-entry, and we have been doing that for the last several podcasts. Um, we had a guest on a couple weeks ago uh, from Sarasota, Florida, who started Project 180. Um, that's a residential program, very, very limited to, uh, I think, about 12 men who live in the uh, two homes that Barbara managed to uh, get for them. But now we have John Eldon, who has a very different take on reentry. He started After Innocence, also a nonprofit, and his group serves 48 states. Um, and his program, we would say, is a post-release justice for Americans who've been wrongly convicted and sent to prison. So we're going to, it's based in Oakland, California, by the way, we're going to continue our discussion about After Innocence and um, like to pick it up with, uh, with John. Welcome back, John. Thank you. All right. Um, so last time we talked about your, what I guess I would call your target areas, um, healthcare, legal services, and social services, and how you reach out to people and try to f find out what it is that they are needing in their lives after they get out of prison. Um, it's such a tremendous challenge to come back into a world that you have left maybe 25 years ago. I'm thinking about some of the exonerees at the Florida and the Innocence Project of Florida, some of whom have been out of society and in prison for as long as 35 years, as long as 43 years, and imagine what uh, it must be like to come back into a very, very different world. So um, how, how do you how do you even find some of these people that you are uh, helping with your services? Uh, a combination of ways. Um, as you mentioned, um, one of the things that's unique about our project or approach to reentry is that we are trying to assist and make services available on an ongoing basis to the entire exoneree population in America, precisely because there's never really been any help for them. And so even if they've been out for a while, a while meaning five years or 10 years or even 20 years, um, chances are great that, that they will make very good use of the services we're offering. And it's our obligation to treat them not as people that uh, just got out too soon to get help, uh, but people that were very interested in embracing and, and helping to the extent that we can. You asked how we find them. So it's a combination of ways. When your audience reads about an exoneration in the United States, there's a very good chance that we are involved uh, hopefully immediately or very, very soon after. Um, and we, we get involved through our colleagues in the innocence organization, in the innocence community made up of innocence organizations across the country, uh, most or nearly all of them as part of the innocence network, uh, of which After Innocence is a part. So our colleagues tip us off or give us a call, hey, we're getting this person out. Can we, can we get together and start working on things that we have a great deal of expertise in um, because these individual projects, most of them, um, are, are not dealing with a large number of exonerations every year, not because they're not doing great work, but because it's such hard work. And, and their projects are typically quite small that you know you don't get the experience of handling you know five or 10 or more exonerations in a given 
short period of time. And therefore, doing something like getting a photo ID during COVID, which is incredibly difficult enough, believe it or not, uh, without COVID, but during the pandemic is exceptionally difficult. And um, we're able to get in there very quickly and help with them on that and many other things, critical things, including healthcare. And they know that we can provide the expertise um, in, in, in getting these things started and getting them done quickly. So our colleagues uh, are the ones who link us. Occasionally it's lawyers who've heard of the work that we do. Um, and other times it's me on the phone calling the lawyer, trying to reach the exoneree, which can be incredibly difficult, um, but trying to get in there and offer services. And when um, and when we can, uh, you know, we always try to get to them as quickly as possible through outreach. So those are the people who get out um, in in you know on a on a week over week basis. I see. I see. But there's another piece to it, and the other yeah. piece to it is, as I mentioned. Um, our project is about trying to get to every exoneree in America. And so on a week over week basis, uh, we are look, hunt, uh, searching for contact information, um, trying to find a way to reach an exoneration that we've read about on the National Registry of Exonerations or on um, some other resource that is, uh, uh, so in addition to trying to get to people, of course, who are just getting out of prison uh, for wrongful conviction. Um, we serve the entire exoneree population in America, and our goal is to reach every single one of them with this offer of support. And so that means that we are researching old cases. Many of them uh, are we first find out about on the National Registry of Exonerations, and, uh, and trying to get a hold of those people, which is a strange business of trying to track someone down or or a lawyer or someone who knows them and and um, uh, and trying to get them on the phone and introduce this work. And uh, one of the great parts of this is that if we can actually manage to get someone on the phone, whether they've been out of prison for five years or 10 years or much longer, uh, once we get them on the phone, uh, we are able to explain what we do and give them an opportunity to find out for themselves. They can do independent research online. They can talk to other people to make sure that we are who we say we are. And we have a, a, you know, a, a very, very high chance of being able to then do work with them. And not long ago, uh, it was probably October, uh, I found someone on the National Registry of Exonerations who had been in, exonerated in 1976, uh, at the mm. time, six years old. And, uh, after some hunting, I found a number for him and I called him up and I introduced myself and I introduced our project and he paused and he said, you realize that I've been out of prison for 44 years. And I said, oh yes, I do. And I'm sorry we're late. I'm sorry, but we're here now. And like almost every one of them, they say, wow, we, I, I really wish there had been something like this when we first got out. And um, that's a, an unfortunate reality, but that's not a reason to not do this work. That's a reason to do it for many more people and, and more intensively, and that's what we're going to do. Absolutely. Now, um, I have mentioned the National Registry of Exoneration exonerations before, but my feeling is it is worth mentioning again. Sometimes, you know, there may be new listeners that didn't hear me. Um, it, it is a wonderful website and it tracks men and women 
who have been wrongfully convicted and imprisoned. Um, the current tally, I happened to have checked yesterday, is 2,708 exonerees. And the registry has been keeping track only since 1989. So the entire stories of each exoneree is, uh, are there, and you can read about each case, and you can sit there probably for the next year and read about um, all of these uh, different uh, men and women. So uh, that's a great source for you, uh, I would assume, right? The, the registry. It's, it's a, a, an incredibly important resource. I think that um, our work would be, uh, you know, I, I can't imagine our work without the registry because of its thoroughness and, and the fact that it is ongoing, like our project. So, you know, how are we as a society to know about wrongful conviction? Um, there's a lot of newspaper headlines. There are documentaries that come and go on, on Netflix and, and sure. other streaming sites. Um, there really needs to be a monument to this issue, to these people, to what happened. And it needs to be something living and ongoing. And the National Register of Exonerations is a very, very good effort in that direction. Um, every day they are working to identify cases from the past, to track current cases. And there, it is an academic standard. It's maintained by the University of California, Irvine, and a serious team of researchers and, and award-winning journalists. And I'm very, very uh, proud to be working with the, the registry and really see it as one of the, the really uh, unsung heroes of our movement, because without it, um, we, we wouldn't have a reference point. Each of the organizations features its own clients, understandably, but what about everybody else? And one of the things we learned from the registry is that more than half of the people who are wrongfully convicted and then released in America are released uh, not without sort of assistance or connection to any kind of formal organization. And, and that informed our work to say, hey, we got to go out and find those people because relying just on our colleagues, um, we, we won't get to everyone. And our goal is to get to everyone and to offer them all something serious and helpful and sustainable. And um, we're a good ways in that direction. You mentioned there are 2,700 or so people listed right. on the registry. Many of them have passed. Many of them are unreachable. Uh, but we're going to get to every single, uh, every, every, all the rest of them uh, as quickly as, as resources will allow. All right. What would you say? I know this is a funny sort of question to ask, but I don't know. I guess I want to give my listeners a scope. What would you say is the population of exonerees at the present time? Now, that's not counting necessarily those who show up on the registry. I'm sure there are those who don't. Would that be right to say? I think it would definitely be right to say one of the, you know, you, you could argue that maybe some of those people on the registry shouldn't be there, but a much stronger argument is there. And, and, and we have the proof of this is that there are many, 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 many more people who just aren't listed yet. The reason for that is that these cases, you know, have to be researched. There's, there was, there's no uh, justice system database for these things. Um, so, you know, it is certainly an undercount. The related question for your listeners is this, um, if you believe and take seriously, as everyone should, that we will make mistakes in everything we do, 
that justice system will not be an exception to that, which means that if you believe in wrongful conviction, you have to believe that we're going to put the wrong person in prison, the wrong person meaning a person who had nothing to do with the crime, um, and that while we should work very hard to reform the system and minimize that, we are never going to get it perfectly right. There will always be wrongful convictions. We should try and minimize them, but we cannot delude ourselves into believing they won't be there. They won't happen. And there are some corollary conclusions we, we should really be honest about. And there at least two of them are these. If you believe in wrongful conviction and you believe that we are going to be sadly, tragically imprisoning people for crimes that we did not, they did not commit, then at any given time, we don't know not only who they are after they've been released, but critically, we don't know right now as we sit here today who in each prison in America is factually innocent as the day is long. Right. The the other thing, which is terribly upsetting, is that we know we won't find them all. No. And some of them who are serving uh, life without parole sentences, maybe some of them who are on death row, we will not be perfect in convicting people correctly, if you want to use that term, although I know that's very complicated. We will. Let me say it differently. We will not be perfect in avoiding convicting and incarcerating people who had nothing to do with the crimes that they were convicted of, nor will we be perfect in identifying those very same people who are in prison and getting them out. And that should give us all pause to how we view the justice system, how we view ourselves, and how we view the very concept of error and how well we're prepared to deal with it and its consequences. And after innocence is looking at one consequence of that error, which is if you're going to have a justice system, you're going to, in some number, convict people who, in fact, did not do the crime. Once you find those people, your, ob your obligation is not only to try vigorously to find those people but and free them, but also to take care of them and make some amends after they get out. And we are about that last part because no one else is. One of the big misconceptions is that the same, you know, is that there are organizations out there who free the innocent, who occupy themselves then with substantial reentry support over years. The reality is that most of the organizations that do this work do not have the skills because they're completely different. They're not, we're not writing briefs, we're not making legal arguments. I'm a trained lawyer, but that's not what I do anymore. They don't have the skills, they don't have the money, they don't have the focus. Their best use of time is to get more people out of prison. And that's why this needed to be a separate standalone organization. And also, as I mentioned before, because if you wanna help the exoneree population entirely, you're not going to do it from an organization that is going to be looking after only its own clients. And because all of the, save a couple of them, all of these organizations are, are, are thinly resourced and thinly funded and, and struggling to stay afloat and do this very important work, I thought it was very important to say to them, hey, listen, we will collaborate with you. We will come as soon as you get someone out. And we'll work with you and, and try and support them. But you don't need to try and make that part of your work. Mm -hmm. uh, you you keep getting people out of prison. And right. most of them are very happy to to, uh, to, to to follow or to go with that. So, Right. 
All right. Um, I wanted you to tell us if you could or would, um, <laughs> excuse me, about individual cases uh, that you um, have had great success with. Is that a possibility? You don't necessarily have to mention names. But sure. are, are there some cases you're very proud of that you've Oh, there are, there are tons of cases that I'm proud of. And I don't know whether your listeners will, you know, they're, they're, the things that I'm proud of are, well, the article that you read, for example, about working with a, a client who for months, surrounded by a loving and supportive family and network of lawyers and well-wishers, still for, you know, but none of them had experience and expertise in sorting through the particular reason why he was unable to get his healthcare uh, functioning, get get enrolled and, and, and be able to use it. And so the very unsexy, unromantic work of sitting on, uh, on the phone with uh, social services, sitting on the phone with social security, trying to get someone disability, sitting on the phone with uh, with a, a healthcare provider or, um, or, or the like. Um, the great successes are when we are able to be the change agent for removing an impediment, for facilitating someone to actually make use of something. So you read an article about a, an exoneree who um, talked about having back pain for years and not realizing that relief was a surgery away, but he wasn't getting the Medicaid he was eligible for, nor connected to the surgeon. We were able to do that. It wasn't magic. It wasn't uh, a, a, a stroke of great genius. It was a lot of serious, hard, tenacious work, which by the way, goes on in social service organizations all across the country. And this is what social workers do on a day-over-day -day basis. They just do it a little differently. They do it locally with local clients. Um, and what we do is we do it over the phone and places we've never been and places we've never worked and we figure it out. And so a lot of the stories would be like that. Um, one of the, 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 the big projects that we did that I'm very, very proud of um, and, and, and had some great, great success with was um, a few years ago, um, through the hard work of the Innocence Project in New York and others, uh, Congress passed a revision to the tax code. And what it said was, for those who've received any money in connection with wrongful conviction, which your listeners should know is the distinct minority if you're talking about real money. When you read that so-and-so settled a case for millions of dollars, know that that is not representative of the exoneree population. And if you go on the National Register of Exonerations, you can see in the individual write-ups, the very last paragraph will talk about money they did or did not receive. And the statistics, and we've got very good statistics because it's mostly public information, we know who got state compensation in the states that provide it. And we know who got, for the most part, lawsuit money where that was possible. Um, the vast majority don't have it. But for those who do, um, Congress says, you know what? We're gonna revise the tax code. That money is gonna be excluded from income. The federal government is not going to tax it uh, from here on out. And what that did was it clarified what had been a gray area. Gray area because the law never really did a good job of categorizing what this money was. And so what they also did was they made it retroactive. And they said, anybody who's ever paid that money uh, can get it back. It's a very short window. And so there was no one in the country who was going to do implementation of this 
opportunity for the exonerees out there who we knew would be few, but for them it mattered, to notify them and to help them. And so we embarked on a massive outreach project, not just sending emails, but actually calling people up and helping them investigate whether or not they had paid taxes even 5, 20, and 25 years ago because they do a refund. And that work uh, has now resulted over two separate periods in more than $2 million in recovered money, money that would have been lost but for our work, for a small number of exonerees, but for them it was important. And I'm, I'm very proud of the tenacity and the grit of what it took to do that work because that's sort of representative of the way we go at most of what we do, if not all of it, um, to get in there and do what needs to be done to, to, to show up for these people um, who for so long our system and our society didn't show up for. That's really wonderful. Uh, we are practically out of time. Um, I just had a, a question about, do you keep track of those you've helped? Um, I, I need a real short answer on that one because I want to ask you one other question. Do you, do you keep track of those um, clients that you have helped? We are not only keeping track of what we do, we're in touch. We reach out to every client uh, a couple times a year to check in to make sure their health care is still online or if oh, things change. So we maintain relations uh, with as many of them as we can. Ah, that's wonderful. And the last thing I wanted to ask you, you are the largest re-entry resource group for exonerees in the nation. Uh, what's your vision for the future of After Innocence? So um, let, me start, let me start the question. Our vision is to broaden and reach every exoneree that is reachable in the United States um, and make this serious offer of assistance, which is ongoing once we make it. So that's to broaden the project and reach more folks, and then also to deepen the offering so that we can provide them when we call them and, and then call them you know, later and in subsequent years, we add to what we can do for them. And that, along with some serious policy reform, so that our laws, especially around compensation and around post-release support, uh, show up for these people in the way that nearly all Americans, no matter where you are on the political spectrum, would say is appropriate. It won't cost that much money. And for anyone who recognizes that somebody has been deprived of years of their lives by the state in the name of the people for a crime they didn't commit, we owe them a lot more than they're getting. And it's time that our laws, compensation laws, social service laws, especially directed at the wrongfully convicted, but also generally, um, better reflected our values as a society. So we're in that fight too. That's great. I would like you to just give your website just in case people would want to contact you. What, what is your website? After Innocence is found at www. Uh, let me start again. Our website is after, like before and after, A-F-T-E-R, dash, as in hyphen, and then innocence, I-N-N-O-C-E-N-C-E. -E -E. So after-innocence.org. Great. Terrific. Well, John, it's been a pleasure to have you with us and broaden the discussion of reentry to really the entire nation um, and uh, to find out that there is help for people who have had such a bad situation by being locked up when they should never have been in the first place. And at least they have your group to help them 
not just right after they get out, but as you said, for years to come if they need it. So thank you so much for telling us about your, your uh, nonprofit organization and for spending time with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank um, you. Great you're to be very here. welcome. You're welcome. All right. So tune in next time to Pursuing Justice when I hope to have the writers of the play, The Exonerated, which has been performed all over the country. We're hoping they will be our guests next time. See you next time on Pursuing Justice. Mm -hmm.